Harry Wabas remembers catching sturgeon as a child. I used to go out the river to uh, Cree Woman Rapid, and my dad used to set up a net. Harry and his father would paddle from their home in Webequay First Nation, Aquinisk Lake to Cree Woman Rapids, about 500 kilometers northeast of Thunder Bay. And he would catch a sturgeon net probably about six feet long, and that's how big they were. Lake sturgeon are one of Canada's largest freshwater fish. They can grow to two meters long and weigh up to nearly 400 pounds. They can live to be 100, and their ancestors have been swimming around on this planet for more than 200 million years. For time immemorial, members of some First Nations in what we now call Northern Ontario have caught the sturgeon for food. Harry says he and his father would set nets along freshwater rapids and wait. You see something, then you can feel it, eh? because you know, something's there. You can feel that, the strength of that sturgeon. That's how powerful it is. You gotta be careful how you pull it out, because it can, you know, it's very uh, strong. Sometimes it takes two people. But if you manage to catch one... It's that feeling that you feel great. Then, uh, you know, you're going to have a special meal. Harry says he used those skills when he joined the commercial fishing industry. Now, the commercial fishing was big. And when I was a, a young boy, we used to commercial fish upriver. That's where we got our income. But overfishing helped drive the sturgeon near extinction and development has driven a loss of the sturgeon's habitat. The construction of hydroelectric dams and the contamination of lakes can interrupt sturgeon on their way to spawning grounds. To this day, the Conservation Group International Union for Conservation of Nature lists lake sturgeon as globally endangered. The Canadian government gives them the same classification pretty much everywhere they once roamed in abundance, except in northern Ontario. The wetlands that wrap around the Hudson and James Bays could be one of the last great sturgeon populations left on the planet, but they're still listed as a species of special concern. Big changes are looming that could disrupt much more than the sturgeon population. It's going to have an impact to everything, the animal kingdom itself, with the nuts and even the insects. They come in. Just like a, a locust that comes in, comes in, reaps the harvest, and gone. Harry's home in Webequay First Nation is about 70 kilometers from Ontario's Ring of Fire mining region, a 5,000 square kilometer ring in the province's north that contains the minerals needed for clean technologies and batteries. At present, the region can only be reached by airplane and a winter road carved over the land and ice each year. But two First Nations in the area, Webequay and Martin Falls, have a plan to change that. The First Nations are proponents of a series of roads that would link the Ring of Fire and their nations into the Ontario Highway Network. It will cross a river system that First Nations have relied on for as long as can be remembered. And amid the climate crisis, the roads are also putting a powerful climate cooling landscape at risk. The region is home to the second largest expanse of muskeg peatlands in the world, a vast bog that sucks planet warming carbon out of the atmosphere. And experts say all of it, the muskeg, the rivers, and the sturgeon, could be put at risk by mining and road development. This podcast is called The Road. It's a co-production with Canada's National Observer. Funding for this podcast comes from the Gordon Sinclair Foundation. I'm Isaac Punney. I'm a journalist, and I'm your host for this series. And you're listening to Episode 1. 
the road. Webequay First Nations Town sits on an island in Winnisk Lake, about 500 kilometers north of Thunder Bay. It's one of many islands that dot the river and lake system in northern Ontario. And while Webequay First Nations Reserve is not far from the muskeg peatlands that wrap around Hudson and James Bays, its village is on solid ground. The island is surrounded by a boreal forest of evergreen birch and leafy trees that shock the landscape of vibrant gold come fall time. I met Lorraine Whitehead in the nation's business center, home to its grocery store, post office, and bank. So there's a hill at the end of north side of the town. So as, as kids, we would go sliding there. Some of our kids right now still do. So it's called Josie's Hill. And as a kid, I, rem I would lay, lay on top of that hill and I would look at stars. I would uh, kind of reach my hand out. They seemed so close, so close, but so far away. When the lakes and rivers froze over in the winter, Whitehead and her grandparents would go hunting on the ice. We didn't use a snowmobile to go out and hunt rabbit. We didn't use a snowmobile to go hunt deer or moose. They walked, dog sled. Her grandfather was also a trapper. So he would trap beaver, marten, wolf. We would leave early in the morning if before, before sunrise would be six, maybe five, six. And you'd check your trap. And it seemed so easy to access these, even though it, it was just like two lakes away. Like many of the First Nations in Northern Ontario, Martin Falls and Webequay First Nation are difficult to reach. To visit, you can fly in, but the cost can be high. A round trip from Thunder Bay to Webequay on a regularly scheduled flight can cost nearly $1,000, and chartered flights and cargo flights can cost even more. Some people in Webequay can move around the river system by boat, but that has its limitations. Here's Eric Schwebeck. Most community members have little knowledge of the river system, you know, where the rocks are. People can't really go too far with their boats. And even people who do know how to navigate the river system are running into trouble. As the planet warms, community members are seeing water levels drop in the rivers and lakes, which makes it harder to travel. Then there's the Winter Road, a vital series of icy paths that are built each year when the winter gets cold enough to freeze the river system. It connects many of the remote First Nations into the highway network. It was a uh, winter wonderland. I, it's cold. Everything's like quiet. It's quiet. You can hear anything out there. Alex Peltier helped maintain the Winter Roads. He's not a northerner. Instead, he's a contractor from Manitoulin Island, much closer to Toronto. Last year, he decided to head north. <laughs> yeah, I've uh, watched the shows on TV, and I, you know, I just thought, wow, that that's that's cool. Like, so I went out, and yeah, I did it for about five weeks. 2022, I was out there from um, February till pretty much the beginning of April. 
And when he wasn't driving on the winter roads. When you stop, you, you don't hear any. You hear the little birds. And during the day, you don't hear any animals. It's pretty quiet. It's at night, you hear the wolves. There's a lot of wolves out there. Every now and then, you'd see a moose walking by, or they're pretty silent too. You can barely hear them. In the months he worked on the road, Peltier drove graders to maintain the road and helped escort trucks along the frozen path. But mostly, when I got there was uh, hauling fuel with the pickup trucks. And even though it takes months of work to maintain the road each year, the time they have to use the road is shortening every year because of climate uh, change, right? When I was out there, when things started melting, it they melted fast. Like I was busting through in my pickup truck, <laughs> let alone the vehicles, the trucks driving on the road. Webakwe First Nation Chief Cornelius Wabas says these days, the winter road doesn't last the winter. It'd be around eight weeks. Last year, it was a little bit longer, eight weeks. Some other years, like four weeks to six weeks. So we have to be, you know, proactive in how we want to use the winter road. Bruce Achnipaneskum says it's getting harder to bring in goods and services. It's something that the everyday Canadians take for granted, uh, having road access. They can't run to the nearest grocery store or nearest hardware store to pick up large items, building supplies, and all that is uh, very prohibitive to bring in to the community. He's the chief of Martin Falls First Nation, a remote nation that sits about 160 kilometers southeast of Webakwe. Last year, Martin Falls First Nation children were absent from school for more than 160 days because there was no housing for teachers. The nation couldn't bring in housing and materials until the land froze over. Trying to get all that building material in into our community was, uh, was something that was a, a big challenge for us but uh, we managed to do it. For Peltier, who's been working as a contractor for First Nations, not having a road year-round is a problem. I always need stuff here, and it's uh, sometimes when I order a part or nuts and bolts, anything, anything I need. I gotta wait, you know, a week, 10 days. Sometimes when it gets here, it's not what I ordered. And like all First Nations without reliable roads, everything is expensive. Except for the brief window in the winter, food and supplies come in by plane. In Webakwe First Nation, the cost of gas is often between four and five dollars a liter, even after a federal government subsidy aimed to help northerners in isolation pay for food. The federal government's latest data shows feeding a family of four in Webakwe First Nation costs at least four hundred and thirty dollars a week. That's way more expensive than in southern Ontario. Data from Ottawa Public Health shows a family of four in Ottawa costs at least $250 each week to feed. Many northerners hunt and fish for significant parts of their diets. Chief Cornelius says there's a solution to the high costs. You know, our elders have always talked about having a road, whether or not there was a mine because of the, uh, the cost of living. Eh? We've been advocating for a road for close to 20 years. Uh, four previous chiefs have been uh, doing road studies, uh, uh, different corridors and different options. And 
And, you know, it's something that's uh, needed by the community. Chief Achni Paneskum says Martin Falls First Nation has wanted a road for a long time. And in 2007, Ontario started to take notice. A mining company, Norant Resources, discovered a large deposit of nickel about 70 kilometers east of Webuque First Nation. Now, with the mining company asking, Ontario committed to building a road to the region. Meanwhile, there was a sort of gold rush on the area. Several mining companies rushed to survey and state claims in the area now known as the Ring of Fire. And with them, the companies brought a preview of how mining and road activity would disrupt life in the north. They flew their planes and helicopters over the land and often landed in Webuque First Nations airstrip. Eric Shawaybik says they disturbed the wildlife. I, I've seen helicopters, you know, you can see the geese coming and all of a sudden a helicopter would fly by and spook the geese. And I, I've seen that happen a few times already. For moose, they're not really close because of the, uh, the airplane noises. South of Shawaybik, Achni Paneskum says exploration interrupted Martin Falls First Nation too. Maybe somebody uh, was up there and, and hunting or trapping and uh, they were they're interrupted with a helicopter flying by or a helicopter landing. That's a huge problem because hunting is a major source of food. Our community is needing the land for our Aboriginal tree rights, you know, our activities go out there every year, all year to hunt to fish, and we use that land. So when other people come there and, and are doing other activities, which uh, threaten our, our way of life, we have to oppose that. And eventually they got fed up. In January of 2010, members of Webuque First Nation and Martin Falls First Nation pitched tents on the airstrips near exploration camps at McFalls and Copper Lakes. They stopped mining companies from moving equipment and supplies to their camps. Achni Paneskum was there. We had blockaded the ice runway at that time because we were concerned about, about the methods of uh, delivering fuel and also potential spillage on the environment at that area. If it's unregulated, we didn't want it to be the, the Wild West, of, uh, all those planes landing there and uh, dumping fuel and having fuel spills. Chief Cornelius was there too. Yeah, we went over there and blockade and said, if something is going to happen in this area, we want to be part of that. Because we weren't even consulted when things were happening over there. So the community said, we will block it because we want to be part of what's going to happen up there. And he says the companies listened. Norant Resources agreed to employ more members of Webuque First Nation at their staking site. With an agreement in place, Martin Falls First Nation signed a Memorandum of Understanding with Ontario. That's an agreement that meant the First Nations would let mining activity continue. But life didn't go back to the way it was before the mining boom. We used to do a lot of trapping, and that's how we sustained ourselves. Food and, and, and living, living off the land. Now, things are changing because there is new things coming into play, including mining and also exploration. And that's changing the way of life for us. Shawaybik says people still need to travel farther to hunt and fish. He says moose and big game stay farther away from the city and so do some fish. 
Back then there used to be a lot of sturgeon in, in this area here. They used to swim up this way, but now uh, there's no sturgeon. You have to go far to get that sturgeon. A road could fix that problem. But if you have like an all-season road, you can drive up, go out, make a camp somewhere, and uh, go hunting further in the, uh, the community. That's what I would do if we have a road. Like everybody has trucks here and you can just put your gear in the truck and go out hunting. And there will be like more places to go instead of in Webekwe. Like we have no roads going anywhere. It's just around the island. It could mean people could drive to Thunder Bay where there are hospitals and healthcare. Increasing uh, access for health, seeing a doctor, also accessing, uh, seeing family, and the list goes on. And it would mean developing the ring of fire. Hi, I'm Phelan Johnson. And I'm Leah Simone Bowen, and we look at history a bit differently. Have you ever wondered how hundreds of wild horses came to inhabit an island in the Atlantic Ocean? Or what Lord of the Rings and a small town in Manitoba have in common? Or the burning question, did Canada invent the teen drama? The Secret Life of Canada is a podcast about the country you know and the stories you don't. New episodes available now wherever you get your podcasts. Today, the road that would lead to the First Nations has been split up into three segments. Martin Falls and Webequay First Nations are proponents of all three. First, there's the Martin Falls Community Access Road, which would connect the nation to the Ontario Highway Network. There's the Northern Road Link, which would lead from Martin Falls First Nation north towards Webequay. And there's the Webequay Supply Road, which would lead from Webequay First Nation northeast into the Ring of Fire region. Together, the project would mean up to 500 kilometers worth of gravel road. They would cross the bogs, rivers, and streams that snake through the Hudson Bay lowlands. Martin Falls First Nation and Webequay First Nation are proponents of the roads, which means that the two First Nations are leading the environmental assessments for the project. It's the afternoon of September 25th, 2023, and Webequay First Nation's band office is bustling. Rows of sneakers, slippers, and hiking shoes are at its entrance. Chief Cornelius Wabas's voice drifts through the office from the hall where he stands in front of a crowd holding a microphone. Christmas lights line the wall of the band office's meeting hall, which is a large basketball court-sized room with hardwood floors and high ceilings. In front of Cornelius, about 30 elders are gathered on stackable chairs. A projector beams a map of the Webequay Supply Road onto a white screen behind him. At the back, a team of three visitors from the consulting firm Indigenous Engagement Canada sit at a folding table with large maps of the Webequay Supply Road. Wabas explains the latest plan to make sure the road doesn't contaminate the groundwater. When Wabas is done, about 10 elders gather in chairs to sit with the team from Indigenous Engagement. Others help themselves to bread and soup. Luke Mekanak and Matthias Shiganakweb are two of the elders at the meeting. Second, my last name is... They've been coming to these monthly meetings to work with Webequay First Nation and consultants on the road. Mekanak speaks mostly in Oji Cree. 
Shiganek Webb helps translate for him. It was, we were kind of confused at the first stage. The more we hear it, the more we're comfortable. They say the nation has a lot of work to do before development can start. Yeah. And also, he said there should be more job opportunities for youth and there should be more training, more training for the, especially the youth. Yeah. So they could get the jobs too. They want good education programs in place so that people from Webukwe First Nation can have good jobs in the ring of fire. They need to be trained. Eh? There's only few people that know how to drive vehicles, no even big machineries. And that's why I said there should be more training for youth to, to drive and also to work in the mine because there's more things over there, you need education to work under the mine or on top of the ground. <laughs> Shiganakweb says at the meetings, elders can speak up to make sure the road doesn't disturb things like water sources, burial sites, or hunting grounds. I have to understand the study, eh? the environment study and everything, all the reptiles and fish and animals, and, yeah that we, we don't want to interrupt their areas, which is okay. For Shiganakweb, the meetings can help build trust that developers can build a road that serves Webukwe First Nation. We do, we start to believe them, we start to trust, you know, trust relationship, yeah. The road is one thing, but it promises to bring mining, and many people are not convinced that's a good thing. I met Wendy Brown in Webekwe First Nation's grocery store. She says outside of the meetings in the band office, people don't talk about mining. As a community, there's no community information. Nobody talks about it. It's like a closed subject. I don't even remember being asked if, I, if community members were asked if they were agreed to have mining in their reserve. And despite their consultation meetings, Brown says she doesn't think the nation ever really consented to the mining and road development that started on their land. I haven't heard anybody say, I agreed. I haven't heard anybody say that. It's just being done. And we're not asked. We're being, well, this is what, what's going to happen. There's going to be mining, you know. Okay. <laughs> like so passive. People don't question things. They just accept. She's worried that once the road reaches the Ring of Fire, mining development will harm the land. It looks really, really big, like all the destruction they're going to do. It is destruction. That's what I see. That's what I know about mining. They destroy things. They destroy the land. They destroy their water. And there'll be mining over there in one of the rivers that's providing us water. Which brings us back to Harry. He's been elected to the band council and works with the land and resources team. We do um, some sessions to make sure that everything is going as planned and also really looking at the effects and the impacts on the environment to it, how that's going to have an impact. And that's what really concerns the people. What happens when there, there is a change in the environment, especially the road? 
It's going to be a big thing. Harry says he sees it as his responsibility to make sure the mining has a minimal impact on the environment, on hunting and fishing and how people use the land. We have to prepare it the best way possible to prevent a natural disaster or, a, or environmental impact. Minimize it as much as possible. It might not be 100%, but maybe close to 99.9%. And Harry says the best way to do that is to work with the developers. By working with them, you know, working with them to make sure that, you know, these, uh, these are addressed. 99.9%. If that's the expectations, you know, that needs to happen, I think that's what's going to happen. They're going to build a road regardless. If we have a big pot of gold that's sitting there, they're going to have to come up and dig it out at some point. It's still going to happen even if we try to stop it or not. Maybe in five, ten years, ten years to twenty years, you know, within that time frame. It might be old at that time, right? You might not see it, but maybe uh, others will, you know, in the younger generation. They'll feel that impact. So you feel like it's going to happen either way? Yeah, it's going to happen either way. Right now, all the road projects are going through environmental and impact assessments, processes the provincial and federal governments use to understand how development will affect land and wildlife. To help them get through that process, the First Nations have hired consultants. My name is Qasim Sadiq. I'm a principal at the consulting firm Saslock. My main role on behalf of Martin Falls is to plan, coordinate, and execute the environmental assessments being undertaken by the community at this point and ensure that the role of the proponent is fulfilled diligently under the direction of the community and chief and council. But Sadiq says it could be years before shovels hit the ground to build the roads. We're hoping that we would have the final report for the Martin Falls Community Access Road ready some point in 2025. And then on the Northern Road link, it's still relatively early. It's probably going to be another two years till we see a report from the Northern Road link. And then it's up to the governments to approve the projects. Harry's convinced it's possible to both protect the environment and develop the region. Despite the Eagle's Nest mining camp continuing to work near Webequay First Nation, the sturgeon have started to return. Six years ago, Harry says he and his wife were out fishing. We were fishing and set up my net and then got anything. He wasn't having any luck and it was getting late, so he started making a fire. And he told me, uh, before you come back, maybe uh, check my net. But as the sun started to set, Harry heard his cousin call him over a two-way radio. His cousin had set up nets near Cree Woman Rapids. Harry's one of those people who can still navigate the river system, so he set out to find his cousin's net. It was dark early when I came. When I was checking his net, I could feel that there was something. So I went in, and I could see that he had caught seven sturgeon. They were, they were big, about uh, four, five feet. For the first time in decades, Harry had found sturgeon. Next time on the road, the crystals were about the size of, say, your, your thumbnail, uh, and they're all fractured. How a mining company triggered a rush on the Ring of Fire. And if you used metal prices, say, at the beginning of this year, 
that value that we calculated is around $90 billion. And why more than a decade later, that company still plans to mine it. We're gonna get in there after everyone agrees. We're gonna go in there and start mining. This podcast is reported, written, and produced by me, Isaac Panay. It's a co-production with Canada's National Observer. Funding for this podcast comes from the Gordon Sinclair Foundation. Story editing by Sandra Bartlett and Zara Kozema, with sound effects from Pixabay. If you think other people should find us, leave a comment and a five-star rating. It would really help us out. And our theme song is Gravel and Grit by Northern Points. <laughs>